0: And just like that, we are live with Chris Cheney. What's up? How are you? <laughs> Good morning. I'm outstanding. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Me too. To get to sit down and chat. And really just to chat as well. I mean, people can go to Wikipedia and be like, yeah, you play with Alanis for this long and you did this record and you play this bass. And that's that's the stuff that's been out there for an age, it seems. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like every time you hear like a an interview, it's like, so, Chris, what are your influences? <laughs> yeah, right? So, no, I'm not into that. Well, I do, You know I'm into? Geezer Butler. <laughs> He's <laughs> my influence. But <laughs> well, that's a great starting point. Before I forget, because I'm, I'm really bad with the memory, Bill Burr, and I'm sure it was you, gave you a name check in his podcast. And I'd love to oh. hear what was going on where he came in and was like a last-minute addition to like a Zeppelin cover or something.
1: Well... Bill, I met Bill through Dave Kushner. Dave Kushner is part of a duo that does the music for the Netflix show F is for Family. Oh, yeah. And I'll plug his third season because I just had it on and it's funny as shit. Right. Um, So I met Bill at a school event that is an annual thing that Dave Kushner organizes up at the Wonderland School for his kids and Bill's a drummer. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, and this is... he's a Janes fan and okay. a rock fan, a music fan, and he came just to hang, really. Right. So we didn't actually play. I've never played bass with him playing drums. Right. Unless we played Highway to Hell, and I'm totally spacing out. But I don't think we did.
0: Well, there was something along the line. But, lines but of...
1: I've been friends with him since we met, okay. and he's come to a few gigs. In fact, we just played two nights ago over at the El Rey. And he came down, and it was a drummer, <laughs> you know, extravaganza. It was a real okay. awesome night. We had jo- Josh, who's the drummer of our cover band, Royal Machines, Josh Freeze. Josh Freeze, yeah. And then Brad Wilk, who's been in a relationship with Juliette Lewis for quite some time. Right. They're like the perfect duo. They sat in and did some songs. <laughs> no kidding. And then Chad Smith and my good buddy Andrew Watt super drum Did. fest. Yeah, it was unbelievable. <laughs> drummers all of them totally different and equally ridiculous. You know. And Bill's
0: like Bill seems like the biggest like genuine music he's fan. He's a
1: huge he's a huge fan. I love to see Loves that. Loves Phil Rudd. I yeah. mean Phil Rudd is like monolithic. He's this this <laughs> naughty I would never even call him like the sleeping giant because he's it's, I, I read something recently, and someone was trying to make a comparison about John Bonham and Phil Rudd. First of all, not comparable. Okay. <laughs> but like, John Bonham can't do what Phil Rudd can do. Wow. Who was saying that? <laughs> I don't know where I read this. This is my shitty memory okay. at the age of almost 50. He, but he, Phil Rudd, I, I, I'm friends with a drummer named Matt Logg. Okay. Who is, you know, he actually played on You Ought to Know on the, the oh. first Atlantis record. Okay. So I met him shortly after that. But I think one of his biggest influences, favorite drummers, is Phil Rudd. Okay. And he's one of those guys that it's so much deeper. It's like Charlie Watts or someone. Like, you can't just get in there and try to play an AC. You sound like a bad cover band when you play AC-DC on the drums. Right. On, on any instrument, for that sure, matter. Sure. So it's a real art to not. Right? Yeah. I, but I love him. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. But and, yeah, so Bill. Bill is just... Man, he. I I love the
0: kind of childlike thing of it where he talks about, you know, he'll be headlining the forum. Yeah. As a stand up comedian, one dude and a microphone, but they'll go in there at like 11 a.m. and play the forum all day. Like, yeah. take a band in there and just rock out for hours because <laughs> it's like a childhood dream to play in such an
1: iconic room. I was out of town when that. I was just texting no. him and I said, <laughs> Next time you're here, I'm coming, man. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and what is he, what kind of bands does he put together? Are they like kind of. Rock? I wasn't there, so okay. I actually don't, I didn't, I actually, you're fun. informing me. You're, okay. You're hipping me to this. <laughs> I don't but know. Just the
0: fact that he mentioned you on this podcast, I was like, I've got to ask you about, about
1: the Bill Burke collection. We've and, just talked about. You know, music, great drummers. He's, a, he's such a fan, so right. we just get into conversations I, about that. I found that. out about that through this
0: guy, Benny Greb, this German drummer that I was working with. Okay. He's like, yeah, I a coming to the shows and buying my DVDs and super fan, yeah? I was like, See? Okay, yeah. Okay, wow. Are there a lot of people, do you find, like, in L.A. that there are a bunch of people under the radar who are, like, hugely into music? I know, um, what's the, uh, Danny, um, Danny Carey of Tool is, like, always at the Baked Potato.
1: Yeah, well, he has his has his band. Like right. My uh, uh, the keyboardist who plays with us in Jane's, his name's Matt Rohde. Oh, I know Matt? Yeah, of course. You know Matt? Yeah, okay, absolutely. Matt's an insane musician. He's uh, the, most people might not know this about Matt, but he's done like every everything. chart for <laughs> the American Idol oh, no, yeah. franchise since like the third season, or for, since the beginning, maybe. And right. then also now for the Voice. So he strikes be, me as a someone who can legitimately play like everything. Yes. Like every, really legit. His wife style. can sing like a bird and his kid is a bass player who's coming after us, man. Oh, really? His son, Sam. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, his wife posts these videos on in these ripping like Havana by Jocko, you know, oh, or Weather Report. Oh, no, we got another one. <laughs> I think your phone is going and we're getting like
0: did it did it did it in the. I am going to totally maybe airplane that thing. Airplane it right now. Sorry about that. we good. There we go. That's the, the legitimacy of it, it being live. Still going. I wonder what that is. Is it really?
1: It's your phone. Mine's airplane as well.
0: Maybe it, That might just be the soundtrack
1: of the day. I actually don't care. We're in a room filled do. with a lot of EMFs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that could
0: be. Yeah, speaking of that, we're in the studio. Is it, is it, st- studio. Is is it is still like, going though? No, no. I still think it's down now. Cool. This is like a really very
1: nice place to work. What's your It's earliest? a little, it's a little compact in here. My okay. son, my son who now is working in Fruity Loops and Pro Tools yeah. has a kind of in the box rig up in his bedroom Okay, and comes down here cause I have more high end monitors. <laughs> yeah. They're like my expensive NS 10s to, right. to reference stuff sure. cause his are super hyped Okay, and he's always trying to convince me to go cause I have a, the live room here, which right, is right, right, about right. three times or four times as big as this room sure. just to move it all in there and. Just wow. make this like a guest bedroom. <laughs> but I spent all this money wiring it. Right, and right. Soundproofing. It's and super clean. Super like. It's super It's small, but it's clean. Like, there's no yeah. clutter in here. For you and me to work in here, great. Yeah, to have hard. a whole band over here, it's, yeah. it's too much. Can you use this as a control room for the main room? That's between, what I do, Oh, yeah. it's wired that way. Yeah, I have drums mic'd up and amps, you know, cabs out there. And
0: you've tracked stuff here,
1: right? Like yeah. Oh, yeah. Stuff. Yeah, I've done a bunch of stuff over the years, yeah. I've had this for... Got around 12 years now. Okay. Yeah. But I just updated it this year.
0: Do you remember the, the moment when you were like, okay, I'm a bass player, but also I need to figure out all this other stuff? Were you like what, paying really uh, close the, attention when you were in the studio early on? Like
1: microphones, yeah, mixing? I, I, I've, had, I've had pretty good fortune working with some really great engineers right. and producers over the years who use whatever you want to call it, kind of the A plus gear, the right, 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 the right, right stuff. Right. And the dirty little secret with me is I'm the shittiest engineer known to man. I, I'm not an engineer. I, my philosophy has always been, and it's probably skewed, especially in this day and age where you have to be the one man do it all. Yeah, Is I don't, I, I'm just a total charlatan in that world. I don't know how to engineer. And I, my theory was always this guy put his life into engineering, no matter how much time I put into it, which I don't have that much to put into it. It's never going to be as good. Right. As someone like Lou Bell or Brian Virtue or some some of the guys I've sure. worked with D- Doug McKean, you know, but have you made things? Have you created things which you thought afterwards
0: hey, you know what that's all right as a mix or I, I can live with that oh yeah, like, things that were just like like you just described something that should produce a result that's just way off and not good, right yeah Being a shot, not really knowing exactly what's going on, but the fact that you paid attention for so many
1: years what i one of my favorite things is working on a project and it could be an artist with a set of demos Uh and you get that demo-itis and then you try (laughs) to recreate the demo. And ultimately there's that inherent magic that it doesn't matter how great of a band you put together and who the producer is. Sometimes you just can't capture the lightning in the bottle again. Right. And what do you do in that situation? It's either like a compromise or you just stick with the demo. Right. 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 Ultimately it just comes down to the, I mean, it's the song. So when I think of the Atlanta's first record, it's not a sonic masterpiece. It's a song. It's a song masterpiece. Right? Okay. You know, it connected at the time. Right. But if you, it was recorded on dots, so It wasn't done on you wow. know Neve sidecars and you know Fairchilds <laughs> and all the old gear wow. that produces the best sonic, you know, bass sound or drum tones. So at that time, was the production concept, was it trying to be modern because ADATs were a
0: new thing? Was it? Was that kind of a shift Well, I in wasn't technology?
1: involved. I I wasn't involved in that record. So I'm just doing my, you know, if I were to compare it to, like, say something like Kevin Killen did, like, So, okay. you know, just a Sonic or a Steely Dan yeah, record yeah, yeah. where there's so yeah. much emphasis yeah. put in on... Oh, we're getting the chatter now. Sorry. <laughs> it's all good. Mama Bear's home. Yeah. <laughs> so I I came in I met Alanis probably about three three four months before the record was released okay so I was not a involved in the recording of Jagged Little Pill at right. all I just but you had already been recording as a bass player in LA before not a, lot, not a lot a little okay. bit the, I, when I first moved to LA I came here in the summer of 91 right on the advice of a good old friend of mine named Mitch Schwartzback who was a drummer who went to CSUN who was really good friends with Gary Novak okay and that was the Gary Novak connection that's where we met okay did you guys live
0: together at some point yeah we lived together
1: for years we had a house we were renting Tim Landers another incredible bass player great bass player yeah Tim Landers had a house that he was renting to us in Woodland Hills and I lived there for years when Gary was out on the road with Chick you know and doing all his weekend warrior stuff jazz gigs with Brandon Fields all those those days we were living together and until basically until I got married okay and, you know, that was a whole other era. I mean, I, I was introduced to Jimmy Earl when I got here. He was my, like I would say, a mentor. Like, okay. You know, my, my first mentor in L.A., Gary introduced me to him. I had right. heard of Jimmy Earl. He's the bass player for Stanley Clark, which is already a feat. Right. I'm like, he's <laughs> the bass player for Stanley? Okay. Okay, yeah. And he basically fed me you know some scraps like stuff that he was doing that oh, he nice. couldn't do he played at the time i think did some gigs with Sonny Paxson. okay and this i didn't know her wow. son was jimmy Paxson, and her husband was jimmy Paxson senior right. and the very musical family and charlie sure Paxton, i mean all great musicians so i filled in and sonny's like you gotta meet my son jimmy you guys are the same age the... <laughs> so you know we're still friends to the to this day, sure, and so that was about the time that then Jimmy and Gary were playing with with Chick. Yeah, that happened like, probably about a year or two later. Maybe, okay. yeah, I can't remember the exact time. Wasn't it around like ninety three, ninety four? Yeah, Paint the World, the album. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. exactly. It was exactly. so it was around that time. Being around
0: those guys, I know you played at the baked potato a bunch, and it was in that sort of like you know. I got detoured.
1: I was, I was, <laughs> I was like, my, I was getting my my act together, and because I grew up playing, not playing jazz, right. playing rock, and. But Gary, rock I went, went to Berkeley, <laughs> and then didn't quite finish on the advice of coming out to L.A. Nice. and I'm like six credits shy, or two courses, academic courses, shy of actually getting a, a bachelor. Nice performance! They should have given you one by now. Come on, <laughs> I, I you know I don't I wouldn't. I'm a humble cat. I don't expect anything. But I you know came out here and I once I got to Berkeley actually I'll backtrack. I that's when I really dug into harmony theory. I had an amazing bass teacher in high school who was teaching me unbeknownst to me like John Schofield. Oh okay. So, like bass lines like so was Daryl kind of Jones from Still Warm. Yeah, yeah, yeah stuff yeah. like that. Meanwhile, I was into Zeppelin and John Paul Jones and you know yeah. Entwistle and the Beatles and 100%. Getty Lee and yeah, yeah. Chris Squire you know, Geezer. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I got out here and met some really great people who, you know, just the ball started rolling for me. I started right. playing at the Spud and then I got this call, a random call, to help my friend audition this girl who was signed to Madonna's new label. Okay. So this was in the days of cassettes. I had to go, I drove on down to Sunset Boulevard to Atlas Third Rail Management and picked up a cassette with three songs that were on Jagged Little Pill. Nice. I had a little Subaru at the time and I didn't have a chance to learn them. So I went to Third Encore where the audition was being held. Wow. And I sat in my car with like my bass neck out the window trying to decipher <laughs> forgiven. I think, like, Hand in My Pocket and You Ought to Know. Those were the songs, I believe. And I go in. I I wasn't really thinking anything of it in terms of me getting the gig. I was really trying to help my friend who was the guitarist who was going out for the gig. Okay. And at the time, like I said, I was just really starting to make my own way. I'd been in L.A. a few years now, about three and a half years. and. Could pay my rent playing bass, which is an accomplishment, big time. Right? Still is. (laughs) Yeah. So I know. I I don't take it for granted. I always say I'm a lifer. I'll be playing clubs or big arenas. I don't care. I just love, you know, playing, making music. Exactly. So I got the call back, which was shocking to me. (laughs) And my buddy was calling me, and he didn't get the call back, which was a bummer because we were we were good buddies. Anyway, later that day, I was with. Gary Novak and Jimmy Earl, and we were up at Jimmy's house, and they're like, I don't know, man, like, you know, because stuff was, like, I was just starting to dig in a little bit right. in town, and I, I didn't know at the time, but as soon as you leave town, you're not available, so if you get a call. You leave for a weekend, basically, you're yeah. gone for six months in everyone's mind. Somebody Isn't else is that taking crazy? that gig, yeah. you know, Whether, wherever you are on the list of getting the call, it doesn't matter right. if you're the first guy to get called or the 15th guy, right? They have to find somebody. I mean,
0: also to me, you you strike me as the guy who's kind of bridged both of those worlds really well. I, Thank I know you. I know certain people who are just
1: I do not leave. That's it. I'm in town. Yeah, I'm by the phone. Tim Pierce is like that. He's the guy that said, "I don't care." I remember talking to him. If for anyone who doesn't know, if Tim Pierce is one of the first call session guitarists and has been right. for decades. Right. And I remember the first time I worked with him. He's like. You know, it doesn't matter if it's like a $50 demo or yeah. I'm getting paid double scale for every minute I'm there. I heard this hour, from, you know.
0: from Sterloid, from Aaron Sterling. Oh, first yeah. Time. Years oh, yeah. Ago, 15 years ago, we were on a record date and I was like, oh, so when are you going out next? He's like, I don't go out. He said, I'll fly somewhere to record for a couple of days with my drums, but I'm an in-town guy and I have no interest in touring. Yeah, it's hard. A uh, tour- decade later, he finally went out with Maya. I think it was just too much of a fun gig and he was involved Yeah, he's got... Well, posters. Sean Hurley's playing bass. Exactly. Pino, family, whoever. whoever. Right. It's
1: one of those guys, but both insane bass players and great people. So right. Right? Like, I looked at him, I was like, wow, you're just not going to leave? You know, I totally didn't get it at the time. And it's probably a good... You know, he's probably making... It's great music. Yeah. Great people. It's like the three three wins <laughs> and you're getting paid probably pretty damn well totally. because it's an A-plus level tour, right? hundred percent. But yeah, so did that just sort of happen
0: naturally for you that you were able to go out and when the Janes thing came along and it was touring or whenever there is touring now, like you...
1: Yeah, with, with Janes, we toured a bit. When I first joined Janes, well, it came after the Atlantis tours. I almost had like a nervous breakdown after the, f- <laughs> after the first Jagger Little Pill tour. Those was 19 months Straight, nonstop and yeah. we basically <laughs> circled the earth three times and each time incrementally moving up in c- venue capacities. We started off right. in like clubs, theaters, then did another lap around the globe doing... Staples Center size, forum size places. Right. Then went to amphitheaters and all the while each year doing festivals in Europe right. and you know, playing ramping b- really big slowly. shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so that was my real first taste of like, God, man, I am just I don't live in LA. Right. I'm <laughs> I would come home for a week after 12 weeks and then have to go right back out right. for another 8 8 or 9 weeks. And how how was she as a singer in terms of like did she like to do 5 shows a, a week or was she kind of Yeah, like, she doesn't belt pretty... it out. It sounds like she belts it out, but she doesn't belt it out to a point where she would lose her voice. She okay. she's a really dynamic amazing amazing singer right. and but kind of quiet on the quieter side and sure. it afforded her a real range and longevity. So she could do multiple nights in a row. Wow. And you know, the other thing at that time, I remember we had to kind of scourge together cover songs. Oh yeah. To make up the Because set. we were playing <laughs> one album. Here's the funny thing about that tour is we couldn't play. Like I, you know, five friends who like talk about you know my buddy taylor who's in the foo fighters who was on the drummer on the tour he's like man we play for three hours with the foos right (laughs) you know my (laughs) arm getting tendonitis. it's insane like they they go nuts it's like pearl jam and gnr they they do these long marathon shows we did at the time we just didn't have any material yeah and so we would put together covers and play every song from the record and one of the good things about it and this is where taylor's Kind of a visionary in like interludes at the time. So we would fill in, you know, between tracks and create little epic journeys to get from A to B. And that was a lot of fun. So we made, we did the best in terms of trying to meet whatever you'd call it, the demands of you know, like a contract right. and how much time you're supposed to play. Yeah, like there's, there is a minimum, believe sure. it or not. Oh, a hundred percent. Like 90 minutes is pretty normal. Normal. Minimum. Yeah. And when
0: you've only got one record out. We like, would play for an hour.
1: Yeah. <laughs> We're playing like Shoreline Amphitheater and we have like a, you know, 70 minute set. Yeah. As is, the headliner. Was there a musical director?
0: <laughs> somebody was there? No, Taylor no. Just all
1: collectively kind it of. It was f- just the four of us and Alanis. It was okay. Jesse Tobias, who now plays with Morrissey. Okay. Nick Lashley at, was the other guitarist. And he had played a little bit with the Pretenders in a band called King Swamp. He's from England. Okay, and his his partner is a amazing songwriter named Danielle Brizois. Okay, and she wrote for the popsters out there. She wrote the song Unwritten with Natasha Bedingfield. Oh yeah, it's like I remember. It's huge. I think hit. she told me yeah, it was like the you know third biggest song in the world for a hundred and five weeks. You know, some yeah, one of yeah, those cra- kind of yeah, crazy stats are like you yeah. hear it in. Whole Foods, you hear it on the <laughs> elevator at the dentist, you hear it in your car, you couldn't get away from it. Right, right. But, right, but amazing. So, so there was
0: experience there. Like yeah, the, yeah. And then Taylor
1: get. was the only one who kinda of walked in, I guess, and just had the gig. Okay. He Where was he coming from? He was playing with Sash Jordan, and Sash Jordan is a, a Canadian artist, and they were opening it up for Steve Perry, and the manager was a guy named Scott Welch. Okay. And he managed Alanis after okay. and remembered Taylor told told Taylor like, "Hey, I think you'd be the perfect drummer for this gig." So when I auditioned, it wasn't Taylor; it was another drummer. When I got the callback, I go down and there's Taylor, and we instantly hit it off. We had a so that was connection. where
0: you met you met on that gig.
1: Yeah, and he's okay. such a dynamic drummer, and his influences were very different than a guy like not that Gary Novak's influence, not influenced by Stuart Copeland or Roger right. Taylor, sure. but those weren't like his primary influences at the time. Totally. So they're just such different drummers that it. It was like almost shocking the first time I played with him because I hadn't played rock for quite a few years at this time. Right. The whole time in Berkeley, it was almost like you're shunned if you played Zeppelin or, you big, know. Big time, yeah,
0: especially back then and those, those people that were there with you at the same time. Yeah, that, that it was like you guy. have
1: to be uber-fusion jazz guy. and you know. Something that <laughs> I heard, I saw Gary uh, probably for the first time with Bob Berg.
0: Oh, yeah. We, you know, with that quartet in London. And was we, that with Patatucci? No, with Ed Howard. Oh, you Ed know, Howard. Ed, yeah. Oh, my God. So good. And Kikoski, Dave Kikoski on piano. And um, I remember, like, getting to hang with him afterwards. I used to work at Ronnie Scott's as an assistant sound engineer, just a okay. gig to go check out the music for free. And one of the things that always stuck with me from Gary was, like, he's like, yeah, I don't tell Alanis about this gig. <laughs> and I don't tell George Benson about
1: okay. the Alanis gig. or You know, like, just... But, Gary's saying, first Gary's first gig yeah. we were playing the, the Tibetan Freedom Concert oh, in, yeah. <laughs> I think it was in, it was in Central Park yeah in the ni- early 90s it was like kind of late 90s or I late think 90s, it was 98 maybe, maybe. Okay. and he had to we all flew into New York mm-hmm. but he had to meet us he was coming from Poland he had a one-off with Holdsworth and Dave Carpenter
0: <laughs>
1: so he went from playing like you know just craziness right. to us playing like real you know just just basic kind of, yeah, songs, yeah. pop.
0: So the, the purpose of bringing that up was like, is there a point, have you ever felt like you had to you know, um, compartmentalize your career or have you always felt that you could just be you and just say, hey, this is me. I do all of these things, take it or leave it. Or have you ever felt like, oh, I have to play this role here and I have to play that role there?
1: No, not not totally. I, I, I was kind of fortunate in the sense... Like the house I grew up in was kind of diverse musically, but it, like I said, there wasn't a lot of jazz. Jazz was mm-hmm. a mystery, it just didn't exist at the time. It was right. like Stevie Wonder and the Stones. Okay. And ABBA and the Bee Gees. And my mom and dad, like playing eight tracks and albums. For anyone who's listening right now, coffee drinkers, this is why Chris works so much. Uh huh. Yeah. Stones uh-huh.
0: and Stevie Wonder and the Bee Gees, as opposed to Dexter Gordon and Charlie Parker. Not that they're any better or worse than each other, but there's a huge lesson to be learned.
1: I don't know. From listening to (laughs) that stuff from uh, early on. I don't know. Now I always feel like I'm playing catch up to you. Ah, come on. (laughs) (laughs) So, so I had that. My grandma was a ragtime hobbyist. So she studied, I would stay with her sometimes in the summer and she taught me just the notes on, you know, in the bass clef, treble clef at the age of five. Yeah. So I had that in the back of my head. I think that was an invaluable thing that didn't come to fruition in my career until I started getting some film work calls. Oh, okay. Because I, I when I first got here, no one was handing me charts of notated bass, you know, right. you just learn songs and sure. play them. Yeah. And <laughs> then I when I finally got kind of a break into that world, I I brushed up. You know, right. I pull out like Samandal and Omnibuck, Dot sure. Sour, Cello Suites. Yeah just to get different types of reading under my belt, like reading without accidentals for those readers out there, readers with only accidentals, without even a key center, like an Omnibook where they just write all the flats and sharps in. And then I got on this film date and it's a lot of pillows, you know, goose (laughs) eggs, big whole notes for you, tied into another whole note. Right, You just got to play the one strong. (laughs)
0: Exactly. But then you'd also on the
1: same thing have to kind of mimic like a synth bass that yeah. was a pre record that might be at a tempo of like 120, sure. and they want it muted, right, kind of right. like the keyboard sound. So it's, I had to, you had to be adaptable and then read it on the spot. So there was yeah. a whole challenge to that. And it's not maybe the most creative, it's a different type of creativity, actually. It's not, you're not coming up with a part, you're trying to, you know, replicate someone's vision, sure. their idea, and do it the best you can. So there's authenticity to it. And and commit it to tape forever. Yeah. It's yeah. always always, always yeah. kind of hanging in the back of my mind when I'm in the studio. It's like, oh, this is going to be around. Yeah. Long after me. And you don't get a chance to punch on those. Not not too much. <laughs> exactly. you, you know, if you make a big clam bake, definitely. But yeah. in general, you want to – I do like – I take some deep breaths before I do those film dates. I really do because yeah. – if I don't, I've I, for initially I would be working with a guy like, say, John Robinson or J.R. on drums, mm. who's an amazing reader. I always feel like I am the young guy here. I don't sure. want to be the one slowing the ship down. I don't sure. want to screw up. So and you now, found there was a little extra pressure in the beginning of being the young guy? or Nope, not from anybody. In, but no, no one from, but just maybe just within me, yeah. I'm going, God, I can't believe I'm playing with the drum who played on rock with you. Right. You know, <laughs> this guy, and he's the coolest guy ever to top it off. Right, right. You know, and he's reading it down, gnarly drum and bass, you know, yeah. patterns that to make it sound like you and execute it like that, that's a high level. Yeah. So I thank my grandma for teaching me how to read and I unearthed it, you know, 30 years later in my life or right. whatever. That's a question I get so much is about, hey, is it important to read music? You know, like
0: I always say yes, because it's why is it not important to broaden your horizons and have more ability? But as you just said, like it can can, can be a really long time between learning it and actually using it.
1: Yeah. You know, and the thing about reading that I find so important is when you talk about people who know, you know, second, third languages and the amount of effort that goes into that, reading doesn't, you don't have to invest that amount of time literally because you're dealing with 12 notes right. and then just the range of your instrument yeah. right and then if just understanding the rhythm rhythm yeah so it's a combination of that i mean obviously you can do crescendos decrescendos dynamics, dynamics all the yeah, little minutia of what that entails right but in general what it affords you is anything that's ever that you've ever heard you now have at your fingertips right. and can read it with you know? um,
0: you, any re, style. You told me a story recently about going to sub in the Foo Fighters.
1: Oh, and yeah. It yeah. was like a massive process and you had to learn all this music. And Yeah, like, they they play a long sh- show right, and they might have shows, like 30 songs in their set. 30 and songs,
0: and... segues, intros, yeah. stuff that's not on the record, stuff you have to listen to board tapes with. Um, yeah.
1: Did you write any cheat sheets out I'd, for that? I'd, I didn't. And the, okay. the, the funniest thing about it is it didn't happen until July. Nate, the story is Nate Mendel, who's an awesome bass player, right. been with the Foo since the beginning, and his wife was pregnant with twins. Right. So he reached out to me like back in February and said, Chaney, we... I, there's a good chance I, you gonna never know someone, what's going to happen, yeah. <laughs> but I, I kind of need you waiting in the wings if if you're cool with that. And I, right. of course, I'm. I've, I met Dave in '96 on tour with Atlantis. Taylor and I were playing with Atlantis, and we met Grohl at that point. Okay, and that's when Taylor met Grohl
0: for the first yeah, time. Yeah, okay. we all
1: met him. We were on a show in Lyon, uh, opening both of us opening up for Neil Young. Wow, <laughs> Atlantis hadn't totally like blown up in France right. yet, or right, right, you know, right, right, in right. Lyon yet. Yeah, <laughs> so that was our first that was the first time I met Nate but we've been friends over the years and Taylor has been one of my closest friends all during this over the last 20 years right. 23 years really since we met and I ended up getting this call. This was the second time. I once had to fill in before, but he ended up getting back in time for the gig. Okay. So I've just sat in a couple times. Right. I've seen a video of that, I think. Yeah, which is really, you know, fun. You just get up and play a song. Totally. And, and Dave makes kind crack kinda, about you being uh, on every co- oh TV God. commercial or something. I was like, come oh, yeah. on, girl. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I, I love Dave. He, he, he can do that. <laughs> yeah. But- and he's not wrong either. You've played no, on a ton of commercial no. But I didn't play on that one. On no, that one. no. <laughs> I, I, That's why I said I wish. Right, 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 right. right, right. If you're singing it, yeah. I wish I played on yeah. it. No. <laughs> no. But the thing was, we got. I got out on the road. I got out a few, what we were assuming was going to be a few days before Nate was going to have to leave. Right. And he, he basically... And he was bit,
0: only leaving for the one day that she was, was going to have It was supposed to be to. two
1: shows. There was a little wrench in, in my schedule. I had... I think his wife, Kate, ended up being like a day later. And because if you have twins, you're not allowed to, you can't like induce, induce right. yeah, at a hospital. But my problem was I was a part of a wedding party for my brother-in-law. Oh, So I was <laughs> slated to play the first night at Fenway Park <laughs> and couldn't do it. I felt like such a douchebag. I'm wow. like, I can't, but I told, you know, the management back in February, I, I have to leave that by night. this day, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I played the show in Pittsburgh. And yeah. we were gonna rehearse. Since I was out there, they have a jam room backstage, right. kind of like what we do with Jane's. So, sure. and we were then to play just the intros and kind of outros of every right. song, just keys, little segues, that sure. kind of stuff. And then every time we go in there, Taylor is such a Jane's fan. We would just play like three days <laughs> or like old Eric, <laughs> no. Avery, old Eric Avery basslines, basically. You know, wow. or we just jam, right? So. I hadn't played one Foo Fighters song, intro, outro, other than in my hotel room <laughs> right. with my headphones and a borrowed bass of Nate's. Wow. Because I didn't even bring a bass out. I just used, we're a similar like, build or physique. Okay. So I just used his, I'd played his P basses backstage and they're set up kind of like how I have mine set up. Right. Wow. So I just played all of his. So that was it. I got on stage and just did it. And thank God it wasn't, there was no like major train wreck or clam festival, you nice. know, nice. but- it was awesome. They have great, they have carpet on their stage which is I that think is another nice. kind of secret. Most people get into bigger they play obviously, you know, big arenas. Yeah. And the Staying. sound in them as a bass player is horrible. Nate yeah. is actually one of the guys in the band that's on in-ears. Okay. Which was also I was I have in-ears, but I was a greenhorn. I would never really done a full show with Jane's with in-ears. Wow. I just like to feel it. You so know, you use the, a wedge and just deal. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, but I, and I have, ear, I have earplugs that have filter cuts. I was going to say, how are your ears after all these years my, of my ears are doing are, that? I mean, I've definitely lost a little hearing in right. my life for the expense of what I would call like Symbols. the pleasure <laughs> of the soulful feeling of like getting hit with the actual music versus right. being like just in your ears. Yeah. But I've gotten better now about kind of dialing in a mix with in-ear monitors and right. I definitely can see the benefits of that, and I right. can really hear the details of things in a cavernous place that you wouldn't get if you don't have them. Right?
0: You know, yeah. It's the the, the sound coming back. I've I haven't hardly played in many stadiums at all, but
1: the few times I have, it's like, what what,
0: what am I doing here?
1: It's, it's a wash, floating. Around. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's why they have Foo Fighters have the, they put carpet on the stage so you get up there. It has like this dead quality, but meanwhile, you're in the forum. A little bit like this room kind of fire. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I have like sound panels. So they, yeah. they create that. And That's awesome. it's the best sounding stage I've ever been on. I even told, I think I told Dave or Taylor, I said after, God, your stage wow. sounds incredible. Do they have quite a bit of volume on the stage, side fills and wedges, or is it pretty not, quiet? Not crazy. Okay. No, it's like normal. Okay. I mean, it's like a normal rock band. It's not excessively loud, but it's not quiet. You know, it's right. just it's 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 pumping
0: and do they how is dave like playing more than three or four shows a week like that's a screamer of a gig right yeah it's, i mean like,
1: he puts uh, there's dave's insane he puts a hundred percent into everything he does I, I i've been playing we just did two shows about about a week ago He had, he had done this track over the summer at the end of the summer he released it it's called play I and mean. it's a 23-minute song, where Dave played every instrument. That, yeah, plays the bass, guitars, yeah. timpanies, and percussion, drums. There's no vocals, right? And three different guitar tracks, and he, being Dave, executed them all in one take. And you know, he's not known yeah. as like a keyboardist, so he, right, you right, know, right. he would get to. I mean, he told me that he would get to like the 20th minute of a song. <laughs> Of the song, you know, it's only three minutes left. Right. And then like, whatever, hit a wrong note or change something, miss, miss some aspect of it as right. you do when you're recording, especially 20 minutes of yeah. a song. <laughs> Hopefully it happens in the first minute. Right, 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 right. <laughs> then you can, so it, it, you know, took a little time to get all those tracks down, but it's such an amazing piece of music. Right. It's almost, I look at it like, you know, like five or six suites all kind of connected. Sure. And so we had to, he reached out to me a couple months ago and said, Hey, I want to Perform this at Warren Haynes Christmas Jam. Oh, shit. Okay. so we just went and did that last week and we got snowed in. First of all, we turned the song from 23 minutes into 39 minutes <laughs> by having extended, <laughs> extended solos. And he got an amazing group of people together too. He, you know, Jason Faulkner's. Oh yeah. A, one of the guitarists, Alan Johannes is one of the guitarists, Elaine Allen. Right. And, um, Barrett Jones played guitar, yeah, wow. Greg Kirsten played keyboard, Jeez. and Drew Hester played percussion. Wow. And Drew's the drummer. You know, he's played with like Joe Walsh and Where Skegan Where were you doing Nicks. this? To get snowed we, in? in? In Asheville, North Carolina. Oh, wow. The, right near the Moog factory. <laughs> I, he's been doing it. This was, I think, the 30th year Warren Haynes Christmas Jam. It's Habitat for Humanity. It's a charity gig. Right, right, right. So we wake up the next morning after the show. It was awesome. Yeah. And dave sends a text hey you guys want to get we were stuck you guys want to get a jam together and even in dave's head like we thought just like a jam in Asheville, we go to like a little club right so we show up at seven o'clock to this place and it was a full-on show there was a thousand people outside played for two hours we performed it again nice and And then then, and then warren came up because everyone was stuck and did a bunch of cover songs i think i played like Breakdown and Helter Skelter, and there was some different bass players. The bass player Jorgen, who plays with Government Mule, was there, okay. nice. and another great bass player who I had met, is Robert Kearns, who plays with Cheryl Crow. Okay, he's a Nashville guy. Yeah, so it was a love fest. Everyone got to jam. A lot of guitar solos, and you know, nice. it was cool.
0: When when do you feel? I always like to ask this question. When do you feel like the most pressure to be you? Oh God! I, I, or is the, or do
1: you not? You just kind of, you roll with it. I, I think that I feel the most pressure in trying to juggle. Honestly, I have two teenagers, ah. and my daughter <laughs> is in the last six months before she leaves the nest. You know, she's yeah. applying to colleges right now. So I, I think the most pressure would be for me, based around guilt of my. I've been very busy. Like the last two months, I barely had a day off. Sure. And I'm like, this is the last year she's in our house. Right. Like, I'm never here. I got to carve out time. How so. has that been generally like over the course of their lives, like since having kids and working so much? I mean, that's that's where I stopped. That's when I, that was the first, I mean, well, I will, I'll say the first inclination of I don't want to tour extensively right. came after I had done that first Jagged Little Pill tour, even though the next one we did was 14 months. That was before kids. And I remember when I was in Janes, we, well, I am in Janes, but when right. I was in Janes, right in the beginning, we did a long tour and we were in Europe for two months and my wife had just had our son wow. and they came out for like three weeks and just the, with was a amaz- yeah, with a newborn, the craziness of having, you know, he's in a sling, my daughter's two, the guys in the band were amazing putting up with me and, you know, like two, like well, a newborn and then a, the terrible twos that right, age, right, you know, right, right. in a confined space. Yeah. But after that tour, I didn't really do much touring. I, would, I went out with Robin Ford a little bit. Michael Landau did like, you know, two, three week kind of right. jaunts or a week here, or there, a bunch of one offs, but I nothing mean, extensive. I'm asking for the listeners, but I'm also asking purely selfishly for me because I'm
0: about to head down that path and like not want to be on the road. I already don't yeah. want to be on the road. I'm already yeah.
1: there, but it's, it's definitely been a tough balance to strike. You know. Yeah, you have to – it's back to kind of what Tim Pierce told me. It's it's one thing to go do a one-off, leave for a couple of days, right. be a weekend warrior, those kind of gigs. Sure. But to really like dig in and go do it, it's really difficult now because you, you – I feel like to make a living, it's show-based. Yeah. You're, you're, so to get lots of record dates that are through the union that, <laughs> hey, that's just not in yeah. the cards anymore. Right. A guy like Lee Scholar would say what sessions? Like and he's been saying that for like over a decade. Right, exactly. Like that scene is like the golden years of being able to make a living in the studio, like a consistent living, sure. Have just, you know, evaporated. and it's shifted to
0: the home studio. Yeah. So the work yeah. still is kind of there, but it's definitely yeah. not actually going into the studio. Exactly. So there's like you and Sean Hurley, Bob Glob, Lee Scular, a few people still
1: Still doing it's, it. I'm, I, God, I, I don't even know if I'm – I mean, I am. I'm playing on some stuff. Yeah, but, yeah, you yeah. know, I'm – yeah, there's not a ton of that type of work. It's more – you know, now everyone – like I said, my son's upstairs with his own right. rig. He's got a little – what do you call it? Like a UA audio phase sure. – or um, interface, interface, I mean. Yeah. And, you know, he can do it all, and he just – grabs an instrument from me and comes up and plays, or he has me play it, or he just programs it. So, would so you everyone say, can do
0: that. Would you say a massive difference to being like late teens, early 20s now, as opposed to when you were, is that it's more about creating your own scene now than perhaps it was then because there were so many sideman opportunities available.
1: Yeah, that back then it was you wanted to start a band. Nowadays, you can be your own band. Right. You can just do it all. Producer he has My son writer. has sample packs. Right sounds up the yin yang every native instrument right. the keyscapes and yeah. omnispheres and all these plugins that he's just kind of I've I get usually a few licenses so I just yeah. throw in my second license <laughs> right or if it's something I don't have and he wants it's like a birthday or Christmas gift sure. you know but I'm really happy he's into it but it does yeah. you get so many people that's you know that's how it is now right. that's why the scene is you could almost say like over saturated there's 10 gazillion songwriters and musicians and
0: do you think it was more healthy when there were the gatekeepers
1: this is a this is a topic that's been recurring on the podcast when that when you actually had to no kind of fight for it you don't okay i don't no so. I'm, I'm all for where we are and i know there's good and bad with both okay so that's the follow-up question do you think people are
0: taking enough responsibility for the creative side of things because to me, it looks like there's a ton more crap than there was. Maybe it's the same amount of crap, it's just more
1: visible now. dwarf. Well, there's a ton yeah. more because we're s- over 7 billion strong. Right. <laughs> and it is just going to be that. It's, it's There's no denying the how much you have to sift through to find the diamonds. Right. You know? Right. So I, what blows me away, what's exciting about now is finding the diamonds. I, I was turned on to... I always talk to my friends, you know, in the studio, like, what have you been checking out? Right. Any new bands, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I'm just, I'll be shocked. Like there's a band and I didn't even know they were around. They've been around for eight years <laughs> okay. and they're unbelievable. Right. And they have a huge following, but I don't even know who they are. Right, right, and there's right. tons of those type of bands. Okay. So that, you didn't have access to that. I would buy records from a little store called Village Music, which is an iconic record store up in Marin County sure. where I grew up. It was actually in Mill Valley and it closed recently. It was like a heartbreaking thing. It was like the end of an era. Right. But at that time, it it was like you're probably like me. Like you're a kid in a candy store. You can't wait to get the new album by so-and-so. You just check the credits. Who played bass? Who engineered it? Who's the producer? whatnot. So that side of it is a little – it's just because I'm old. (laughs) <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm right I'm, you. I'm young at heart but yeah. physically i'm old and i divulge my years when my kids say they've never even bought a cd <laughs> yeah never mind we have the LP, spotify yeah. premium family pack right, you know right, what i mean right, 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 right. but they don't give the those that you know the credits the details of the yeah. record you know where was it recorded like, yeah they wouldn't know if i said yeah we're this is at Trident. Right. This is at Oceanway, wherever Power it is. Station, they, yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. like you have to dig. So for just me as a player, I really like to know, wow, that bass amazing who did that. And sure. now you can't really do it. You have to do a lot of digging to get that information, especially if it's a more indie or underground kind of band. Right, right. Wow, okay. I don't know. I'm, I'm rambling. No, no, But, but, I, the, but I think the, the scene is, it's really tricky now i think there's the disparity between like having real success like artists take massive i don't even think you're an artist after you start taking like massive endorsements you're like a brand at that point versus being just uh you know like a solo artist or a band sure like the focus is now like managing your brand and it's not totally and that's one of the things i've really been impressed with the guy like like i'll use Grohl as an example sure you know they haven't done that yeah you don't you associate
0: just, dave Grohl with uh you know, know louis vuitton or something you not know just I mean? any brand or some vodka, vodka yeah. company exactly, you know? uh, exactly. I, I like that that yeah chelsea was asking me the other day like you know why is this cardi b song number one and it's kind of horrendous whether you you know we thought it was pretty bad but she's wearing Louis Vuittons and making gajillion dollars and i i, I kind of <laughs> like it i kind of likened it to like a tiger woods who makes a small percentage of his money actually winning golf tournaments and the bajillion dollars in branding and endorsements like off the course. And that's kind oh. of how it's become.
1: It's obvious now the reason people to go for the cash grab or take the money is because it's like what we talked about, to make a living now. Right. The work is is like the Uber, you know, it's like there's no middle class. Right. There's not a lot and it's crazy in, the music, me,
0: in the music industry as well. It's crazy to me, like, recorded music is one of the few, few media outlets that nobody's actually paying for anymore. People buy yeah. video games. They yeah. rent movies still, even if it's on iTunes or Amazon. You pay for that. That's not You're free. Right. There's not a streaming thing that has all the new movies out. No. It's, it's only music. Books, ebooks. I buy ebooks, They're $15 each. Sometimes they're $20. Yeah. But if I want to listen to music... It's
1: three seconds and ten bucks yeah. a month. You know, That's it's unbelievable yeah. the amount of. I know. I was, it was. I was so shocked by it when I first got. I stepped up my Spotify from just you know to the one we actually pay monthly. Right, this is a few years ago, and I remember just clicking on Miles Davis, mm-hmm. and there was like seventy-nine <laughs> records at your fingertips. So I, immediately, I remember it's like I clicked on Bags Groove with right. Piercy Heath on bass. Like <laughs> I remember that from like my Berkeley days, like. You know, one of my lessons was like chart out the first three courses of his walking line. Right, 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 right. Play a two feel over the, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. And there, and it's just it there it is, right. and it's for everybody. So uh-huh. that is amazing. You have the record store everywhere you go, yeah, and then some. Yeah, more than you have way more than the record store. Yeah, way I went to a record store the other day, and I I probably bought like ten records, just old jazz. You know, like I got some some vinyl. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, I just love, I just, it's nostalgic. I love it. Totally. You know, it sounds great. I have a pretty decent record player uh, Ironic the vinyl is like coming back more
0: than any other form of pressed media. Amazing, it's, yeah. It's so great. Well,
1: people, it, it's an experience, yeah. you know, but it's maintenance because yeah. the record comes to an end very quickly. Right. And you, if you're stuck in that, where you have a playlist just playing on Spotify in your house, your needle's going to get to the end of that record in about 14 minutes. Right. And maybe you got to, be there, be there to, yeah. <laughs> but there's also that attention to the music. Sure, you know. Do you think that um, the the uh, the experience? I love the
0: fact that you use the word experience. Is kind of coming back a little bit in terms of the live thing or the vinyl thing because the mass media and recorded audio is so synthetic and so plastic on a lot of levels. Yeah, Do you think that's I, so, I always. Might should be a positive thing that all this streaming shit is there, like, pushing, yeah, pushing people it doesn't, back to
1: wanting more of a. It's always the joke in the studio. It's like we're sitting there with the most high-end outboard gear known to man, known to women, known to everyone, about to be compressed to one twenty-eight. Yeah, and it just is (laughs) squashed down to like a place where you know. I I I I love the details when I hear stuff in the studio, and you're listening to like a classic track. You almost you're it's like a revelation yeah. in what really what it really sounds like right. so and this is with my crappy ears that have lost hearing over the years sure. yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. what i mean so i can only imagine like the experience for someone who's not toured and like a played. mastering engineer or something yeah he really hears that
0: yeah wow. for
1: nate wood's ears no. yeah there
0: you go <laughs> <laughs> all right well on that bombshell coffee drinkers this has been chris cheney thank you so much for having me live
1: in this Santa Monica. Awesome. my
0: pleasure it's been Super fun, and uh, coffee drinkers, we'll see you again on the next one. I'm
1: gonna go get a cup, I swear.
0: (laughs) Do it.